This morning we'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I invite you to follow along in your Bible or the screen here behind me. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right among them and kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest point of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And I looked things over. I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of the, their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his sides as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet, stay with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with help of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when, we, even when he went for water. This is God's word. Okay, thanks, Eric. I'll make sure that this has got... Uh... Oh, good. There's the scripture reading. I think I put that in the wrong place for you. Okay. Just wanted to make sure everything was there. Well, hello, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to you uh, once again. Let me give you a little flashback this morning uh, or a reminder, perhaps even just a little summary so that you know where we are in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 1, when we open up those pages, we find this man, Nehemiah, who is in exile, 900 miles away from really his hometown, although he wasn't born there. Uh, Jerusalem is a place that had been leveled 
by the Babylonians, and many of the people were carted off in exile. So we open up the pages, find him in a place called Susa, serving as a slave, the main man, the Persian king, Artaxerxes. When he hears a report that his beloved homeland is still in ruins, even though Ezra, another man who had been just before his time, although was still alive, had gone back and started rebuilding the temple. The walls themselves were still in rubble. And he gets a report from one of his uh, brothers that everything that Ezra had begun had come to an end and the place is still in ruins. And this, this disturbs him, so he begins to pray. He weeps, he fasts, he looks for an opportune moment to do something, but what can he do? He's just a slave serving the king, and he has no voice. In fact, if he goes sad into the king's presence, there's a chance that he could be completely, not only cast out of the uh, the presence of the king, but perhaps even killed. And as you know, in chapter 2, one day when he's in front of the king, the king sees he's sad, and he asks him about it, And Nehemiah prays again, this time just a real quick prayer, and he tells the king what's on his heart. He says, my my beloved homeland is in ruins. And the king has favor on him and says, well, then go back and do something about it. In fact, he gives him supplies and resources and a letter, uh, and he sends him on his way. That's that's chapter 2, and he starts surveying the scene, and then he rallies people together, and in chapter 3, As we saw last week, over 40 groups of individuals are busy working on the wall, rebuilding the foundations that have been torn down, and it's all really thrilling and exciting. The vision is coming about. Then we hit chapter 4. In chapter 4, in particular last week, we saw voices of opposition begin to arise. First, in the person of Sanballat, who is actually not physically located in Jerusalem quite yet. He's in a different place, but he's got an army amassed. And they're starting to talk poorly about what's happening and perhaps are threatened by the possibility of a restored Jerusalem because his power might be taken away. So not only does he start whispering to his army about them, uh, but we heard those voices of opposition reach to the people themselves. And, and then it expands, and we made the analogy to, you know, retweeting and, and the post going viral uh, last week that all of a sudden then the people are starting to hear opposition is mounting, and it's not just Sanballat and Tobiah who jumps on board, but then the Amorites and people from Ammon and others are gathering together saying this has got to stop. And that's where we ended in, in verse 9. We saw those voices of opposition arising against the work that they had supposed to be, that that God had given them to do. And and we commented as well that at at the end of the day, underneath all of this, the adversary is always at work, that there is a, a spiritual reality to what's happening, and the physical and the spiritual are combining here, and Satan, whose job description is to steal, kill, and destroy, and who's called elsewhere the father of lies, is whispering all the time to these people and they're starting to believe things that aren't necessarily true so what they have to do is take the weapons that they've been given take every thought captive we spent a lot of time talking about that last week 
and believe what is true. Replace it with what is true. And when you are weak, we are told that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour somebody looking for an opportune time. And it would be grim if we didn't know that we have weapons not only on our side, but the true leader, Christ, who's gone before us and ultimately defeated Satan. He's on a chain, people. But he still has some power. And in chapter 4, verse 10, which Eric just read, we pick up the story with part two to these voices of opposition. And by the way, Liz, great song this morning. If you didn't know, she wrote that song. And uh, it, was, it was perfect for this message as well. And we find ourselves in the context where these people have begun to work. They've got the, the walls built halfway uh, but they start looking around them, and they see what hasn't been done, and they're reminded of dreams that have been taken away. Uh, they're just rubble before them. They're moving toward rebuilding, but they need uh, to continue on in the work when voices of opposition are all around them. So there's lots of discouragement that they're trying to overcome here. And, and of course, this is a, a physical uh, reality is they're trying to rebuild these walls uh, for a particular context in time, but obviously God has given us this for ourselves as well on a scale. There's probably every single one of us in here today who feel like God's given us something to do, a hope and a dream that has been just taken away. And what do we do? How do we, how do we move forward if maybe we've begun to rebuild, but voices of opposition are coming toward us, and, and we don't know how to move forward. Chuck Slindahl wrote a book, Hand Me Another Brick, and he was talking about this particular passage, and he was connecting it to Thomas Edison, who some of you will recognize, I'm guessing, that name, famous inventor. Uh, and he was, uh, it was a biography written about him by his, his son, Thomas Edison's son, who was reflecting on his father, and he said, above and beyond all that, he was a man who refused to be discouraged. His son recalled a freezing December night in 1914. It was at a time when still unfruitful experiments on the nickel-iron alkaline storage battery, to which his dad had devoted almost 10 years, had put Edison on a financial tightrope. The only reason he was still solvent was the profit from his movie and record production. On that December evening, the cry of fire echoed through the plant. Spontaneous combustion had broken out in the film room. Within minutes, all the packing compounds, celluloid for records and film, and other fl flammable goods were in flames. Fire companies from eight surrounding towns arrived, but the heat was so intense and the water pressure so low that the attempt to douse the flames was futile. Everything was destroyed. When he couldn't find his father, the son became concerned. Was he safe? With all his assets going up in a whoosh, would his spirits be broken? After all, he was 67, no age to start all over. Then in the distance, young Edison saw his father in the plant yard running toward him. Where's mom? shouted the inventor. Go get her, son. Tell her to hurry and bring her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. Early the next morning, long before dawn, with the fire barely under control, Edison called his employees together and made an incredible announcement. We're rebuilding. He told one man to lease all the machine shops in the area. He told another to obtain a wrecking crane from the Erie Railroad Company. Then almost as an afterthought, he added, 
Oh, by the way, anybody know where we can get some money? <laughs> Later he explained, we can always make capital out of disaster. We've just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish. We'll build bigger and better on the ruins. Shortly after that, he yawned, rolled up his coat for a pillow, curled up on a table, and immediately fell asleep. I wish I could respond like that to discouragement, don't you? And the fact of the matter is there aren't very many Thomas Edison's in this world for a, a, a lot of us to. It's a great inspiring example. I hear something like that and I think, oh, I don't want to be discouraged in the face of smaller oppositions that I, I face. But I recognize I don't have quite the same character that this individual did. And now we have Nehemiah who is a character as well. There's only one of them. And so it's fitting and appropriate for us when we open up this word to say, well, look at Nehemiah and, and let's learn from him and let's be inspired perhaps to emulate some of his character qualities. And that's good and, and that's fitting. And in fact, God has given us Nehemiah. Although there's only one of them and you and I are not that person, he's given for us his church, Nehemiah, as a picture of what it looks like to press on in the face of discouragement. And when opposition is arising for us, what do we do with that? God's given us Nehemiah. This is for God's people. And it's no mistake, perhaps, today that you find yourself listening to a message like this because there are probably opposition in your life on some level. Perhaps it's a scale. And so let's look at God's word and see this sample pathway, both to stalling out and giving up, which we see in the opening verses, but then to moving forward in the face of opposition. So let's look at this in, in verse 10, for example, this sample pathway. These people have done a great job. The wall is halfway built, but now it's getting difficult. And, and in fact, in verse 10, it starts off by saying, meanwhile, the people in Judah, verse 10. Now, Remember, just before, they were talking about Sam Ballot and others who were outside. They were outside voices of opposition. That's kind of what's going on in the environment. And then meanwhile, back in Judah, which is the very, very place where we started this, they're the ones, as you see, who are now starting to get discouraged. So those voices of opposition came from the outside, and now the people in Judah are starting to believe it also. So it's gone from this external kind of voices of opposition to internal voices. There's discouragement from inside. And maybe this is true of you too when there's kind of some opposition out there. Initially you can keep it at bay, but as time goes on and it keeps coming, you start filtering it inside and internalizing it as well. And it's no surprise then, meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. They are so tired the grind never stops. It just goes on and on and on. And meanwhile, the discouragement is becoming real and they're losing strength. You just want to give up. Tired of the relentless nature of the opposition. Yeah, there was some progress along the way. And, and you could, if you were an optimist, I suppose, look at the walls halfway built and say, look at what we've done. But instead, when discouragement starts to overtake them, they focus on the mess. The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble. So the wall's halfway built, and now 
they're getting discouraged. They look around. They don't see the walls. They see the rubble. They don't see what's been given. They see what's been still needs to be done, what hasn't come about quite yet. And when you're in a place where you're, you know, you're moving towards something, you have a vision for things that could be, it's easy to get so discouraged you start looking at what isn't yet. And that is, frankly, a pathway to stalling out and giving up. It's almost like we could write a book, Seven Easy Steps to Giving Up and Stalling Out. And this is exactly what's happening here. And you see it actually affects the, 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 the vision they have for what they were supposed to be doing. We cannot rebuild the wall. Our strength is giving out. There's so much rubble. We can't rebuild the wall. And now they've lost their vision. I mean, they've just run out of energy. And they're making, they're making progress. They can't see it. And now they have no vision for the future. And they're just ready to completely give up. It's, it's almost like this avalanche of things keeps piling up and we'll forget about it. We'll never get done. In fact, in verse 11, it gets even worse because they start hearing about these enemies and, and the, the people coming against them. It says, our enemies said, we will be among them before they know it. That's the threat. So they hear the whispers of, of their greatest fears coming about. I don't know if you've ever, in a moment of weakness, start playing out worst-case scenarios in your head. It's like all of a sudden the thoughts are spinning and you're starting to live with everything's falling out of control and there's rubble all around me and oh no. It's, it's a global conclusion that our enemy is going to be among us and they're going to kill us and won't even know it. So why even continue anymore? This fear is rising up inside of them. And we saw that last week too, the play on fear that's gripping these people. And they have real enemies, and there's, there's probably logical reasons to have this kind of fear. And we saw the response already before, posting a guard and praying, and praying and posting a guard. You're doing both of these things as well. But they're spinning. They're spinning. And, and in fact, in verse 11, 2, we see that the Jews who lived near them, that's actually verse 12, the, the Jews who lived near them said 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So you've got the people in the city center doing some of the work and Jews out in the countryside who were closer to those harmonies. And they're coming in and saying, hey, stop it. Because there's a threat that's real and we're going to suffer for it. And they say it 10 times over. I don't need to tell you. I don't need to say it 10 times, do I? But they did. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. 10 times. So they're, they're panicking. This is urgent, intense, and extreme statements. 10 times over. They're going to attack us. Let's give up. Forget about it. End the project. Let's keep the peace. And that's a sample pathway to stalling out and giving up. Now, I don't know if you're kind of tracking along and envisioning perhaps moments in your life, maybe even right now, when you see these kind of things happening and somewhere along the way you're resonating with being tired. 
<laughs> tired of the fight and tired and just wanted to give up and you've lost sight and lost vision and you just want to throw in the towel. And maybe some of these people did. You know, I think for most of us, when we read stories like this, we want to be Nehemiah, but we're all these people, aren't we, somewhere along the way? And thankfully, we don't stop there because Nehemiah, as, as a great leader that he was, gives a response to moving forward in the face of opposition. So that's what's happening. These people have lost their hope. They're discouraged. Too much opposition. So what do you do with that? Well, here's what Nehemiah did. The first thing he did in verse 13 is he stationed some of the people at the lowest point of the wall and at the exposed places. So what Nehemiah does is he says, look, we have a crisis. I realize it. You're all discouraged. So he says, let's take the place that's the greatest threat right now, the place where the wall is the lowest and most exposed, and let's focus on that and shore it up. I mean, here's one of those level-headed guys you want around in an emergency. It's not me. I can tell you that. I'll run with, you know, sword and trowel and stones and start piling them up and get my energy out. But this guy is like calm. You want this guy to be the EMT who arrives on the scene of an emergency. First responder is calm, diagnoses the situation, says, let's do this first. And it's interesting, isn't it, that when this opposition's coming and people are overwhelmed, he says, okay, first thing you got to do, take a look at where we're most exposed. Solve the immediate crisis and the place of greatest need. And somehow he's able to take the situation and see what needs to be done first. Uh, those of us who are more prone to maybe the first few verses start thinking about all the possible scenarios that could play out that are terrible. And you can't even do the easiest thing right in front of you. So look at it. Look at Take a... And, and actually, he does that next, after I look things over. It's what he does. So he, he looks at the very first thing, he takes care of it, and then he spends some time thinking about, strategizing, what do we do next? After the immediate crisis is met, and he says, okay, we've got some stability here, he just looks things over. He does a survey of everything. And he takes a look around, and he begins to you know, develop some planning again. And what are we going to do next? And one of the things that he says to the people that's so significant is he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, verse 14, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. We sang about that. You are an awesome, such an awesome God. And look, he says, this fear is real. The people are real. But the God you serve is bigger than the threat that these people could possibly offer. He's a great and awesome God. Remember him. He's the one who brought us here originally, who gave us this land, and who said that if, if you stray from my ways, you'll go into exile. But if you confess your sins and, and repent, then, well, then I'll bring you back, and this is what's happening. So remember that God is for us. And one of the one of the, the great opportunities we have as well to overcome our fear of men is to have a greater fear of God. When God is small and he's 
not that great and not so awesome, yeah, we'll be overcome with the fear of man and the fear of outcomes beyond our control. So one of the things that Nehemiah does is says, look at God who has more control than you could ever imagine. He's awesome and great. And let that shape your perspective on the real and understandable fear of the men around you. And, and by comparison, now, you won't have them to fear at all. So in a moment when you're just overwhelmed, the sample response here to moving forward in the face of opposition is this kind of strategic remembering not only of what needs to be shored up, but the God who is the one who's called you to the place where you are right now. And that puts things into perspective. Who is God and who are these people? And Nehemiah isn't just doing this one time. He's been doing this from the beginning. The book of Nehemiah starts off with prayer, which assumes there's a God who can do something. And it begins along the way with prayer. All throughout this, he, he's praying again and again and again while he's also doing something at the same time. So he says, remember the Lord. The next thing that he does in verses 16 to 18, he says, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half had spears. So yeah, this is fascinating. We've already said that he's kind of praying and planning and praying and planning, but it's kind of ramped up a little bit. Remember, he posted a guard first because he heard about these threats. Now he's getting some people who are just devoted to the military side of it and some that are just devoted to the building side. And then we see that the people who are building have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. I mean, so he's like pulling out all the stops here too. And his strategy to overcoming the opposition has changed over time. Now, since it's Mother's Day, I can recall we have four children. I remember when our kids were younger and, you know, they're kind of changing. There's dynamics. Have you noticed kids aren't static? <laughs> that they change on, on a regular basis? And I know for me, it was always good to have a, I, I like having a plan. If such and such child does such and such, what do I do in response? But what is our, you know, disciplinary tactic for this? And, you know, we'd have a meeting and we'd, we'd get that, you know, precious few minutes of quietness where we say, what are we going to do? And we develop some sort of a plan. And it was great for a week. And then the next week, everything had changed. I, I don't know. Or, or, or one, one kid arose as the chief person of need and interest <laughs> And so we'd deal with that, and then we'd go, and then another. And it just, it never seemed to end. And, well, we needed strategies that changed all the time. And frankly, that never ends, does it? It continues to go on. This is part of what I think can become wearying at points. You just want to have a plan, execute it, and everybody lines up accordingly to it. And it gets done. But it doesn't work like that. So the reality is you're going to continue to face opposition. And part of living a life, even a life of faith guided by God's word, is circling back to that. I mean, look at Nehemiah. He's changing strategy as the opposition changes. It could become overwhelming, but it's also an opportunity, certainly for growth along the way. And in verses 19 through 20, 
He notices that the work is spread out. You know, there's this uh, wall all around Jerusalem, and there's different sections. So he says, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. So he's creating an opportunity for people to gather together and to have a connecting point so that when a trumpet sounds, you come together. And that could be defensive, but I think it also seems to be creating a sense of solidarity. You know, we're spread out everywhere. Let's have a time when we all get together and we could be overcome with opposition and discouraged. So we need to get together and remind ourselves of what is really true. Do any of you have an idea of what that could be in terms of modern relevance? You're experiencing it right now. God has set us, said, set aside one day in seven to gather. Let's not forsake the assembly of gathering together. Declare his faithfulness in the assembly. Remind yourselves of what is true because, frankly, we're scattering and there's opposition everywhere. And if you're doing this on your own, you're not designed that way. He has given us his bride, the church, to get together. And it's not just this Sunday, but that's why we encourage other opportunities to say, hey, you're not in this alone. It's not like you're the first mom ever in the world who's experiencing whatever you're experiencing. You're not alone. You might feel like you are, and you can act like you are, but that would be disaster because if an enemy attacks and overtakes you and you're by yourself, you'll be on the pathway to discouragement. But no, let's rally together. Let's remember that the Lord is for us. And let's, let's leverage the resources that we have. Establish a rallying point for solidarity and safety. That's what Nehemiah does. And when they do that, then 21 through 23, he says, we continued the work. No one took off their clothes. So they're you know, a Tide commercial in the making, basically right here. Everybody is, nobody's changing their clothes because they don't have time for it. This is a moment of incredible intensity. And Nehemiah says, at this point in the stage of rebuilding, and there are times when things are just hard, and, it, and, and you just got, you, can't, you need to have time to change your clothes <laughs> right now. Because if you do and you let your guard down, you can't do it. It's not going to last forever. We need these sustaining moments of calling ourselves together. We need to remember who God is, but this could be a hard time when you have to push through with perseverance. You have to remember what your commitments are. Am I describing parenthood at all to anybody? Or it could be on a relative scale. It could be a student at school. It could be just somebody working on an assembly line. It could be anything that we need to remember that all these things are here for our good. And these reminders are ongoing realities. God's word is living and active. And this moment is for you to remember and to apply. Continuing the work, doing what's hard, pushing through with perseverance and commitment. My sister is a writer for Nike, this little company, they've got a swoosh, create some sports products and stuff like that too. And she actually wrote a film for Nike called There Is No Finish Line. Uh, it's a story of Joan Benoit, who was in 1984, when the Olympics added the women's marathon, she was uh, a gal from Maine who won 
the, the marathon. It's really in, in, inspiring to hear certainly her story and kind of an unassuming person you wouldn't expect to come in. This was before some of the things that we have now and she remembers entering in, in the stadium and hearing the, the roar of the crowd when, when she enters and, and makes that final lap. But one of the things that's great about that film that I appreciate very much is she herself says some of the greatest stories in a marathon come at the end. Not the people who are finishing at the first, but the ones who are plodding along and finishing at the end. And she's the one who won it. She said, some of the greatest stories come from those people. The people who don't get any accolades, but they didn't quit. They kept pushing on. They overcame all kinds of obstacles. And there are very few people left in the stadium to cheer them on. That might be how you feel <laughs> right, right now as well. Just persevering and pushing through. And wow, the trumpets have long stop blowing and I feel completely alone but you're not and one of the beauties of the gospel and the scriptures is that we're assured we're not alone and the, the idea that there is no finish line is that we're continually moving forward and it's not like you cross and you're done but actually in the biblical mindset there is a finish line and that finish line is part of why we press forward in difficulties and it's also because we have somebody who ran the race in who ran at the best time ever. Somebody who made no mistakes along the way, who suffered in the training and crossed the finish line and was able to say, it is finished. There is a finish line, I've done it. I've done everything the Father asked of me and I am the captain, the true captain in this fight. And let, let, let Nehemiah inspire you, but let Christ, who is perfect, be your hope. He crossed the finish line. He finished the race. And then we're told by the book of Hebrews that for our faith as well, he is both the author and the finisher. He's the one who's stirred it up in us, and he will bring it to completion. So you might feel today like somewhere around you, the wall is only half finished. You're looking at the rubble. So look to Christ. That's why that song was so appropriate. It's like, okay, I'm going to pick up this, the trowel, and put some more mortar on it, and put the next brick, but it's not without hope. There is somebody who's not just cheering you on, he's run the race, and now he's marked it out for us as well. And so Nehemiah, he prays, he leverages resources, there's this teamwork, we've got a demonstration of faith, a wonderful leader, and for the exiles of that time, the leader was Nehemiah, but he was just a, an, an anti-type, a, a, a prefiguring of the true leader who would come. And you're not alone in this. Uh, I love the song, For All the Saints. I appreciate the words of it. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, the captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness dread their one true light. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now he is the true captain in the darkness dread, the light that is shining forth. And so the call to us is for the soldiers. May thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So 
these voices of opposition that are coming from the outside and maybe kind of well up within, it's, it's not the end of the story. And thankfully, we didn't just stop in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9, or even in verse 10. And we have us bring, coming here to 23, but we'll see as we move forward, too, that there's always more hurdles to overcome, but we're not left alone. And I, I, I really do think that one of the greatest gifts God gives us is this isn't just Nehemiah running back to the town by himself, doing everything. He's doing it with people. We saw last week the priests rolled up their sleeves. They didn't do that. The daughters of the day who just didn't work like that were there on the front lines. And we're all called to be involved in this. It's no mistake that this project is being done in community. And so Nehemiah reminds us, you're not alone. And uh, let's leverage the resources God has given us. And the beauty of the local church, too, is that this is it. Look around. Here are the people that God's given us. And you're a gift to me. Uh, I can't say that the other way around without sounding a little arrogant. But I know that you are certainly for me. And I, I trust and do believe that each one of us. And I think the beauty, too, of even having people from different nations is the insight that we glean that's beyond the scope of what we could possibly know otherwise. So to me, we're living stones being built together. The wall's half finished. Will it complete? You will not know unless you continue coming back in the weeks ahead. Father, I do pray today that you would give us 